Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Steve Gerard at Benton Lane Winery. It's June 27th, 2018. And Steve, we'll start you off by asking, why wine? Why wine? My, my father loved wine, and um, as a little jerk, I grew up drinking wine. Uh, my dad bought, um, traveled all over the world. He brought back some clarets from France, and, and he would uh, serve them to us for, uh, for every dinner. And even as a little guy, I, I really liked uh, the, the taste of red wine. My sisters hated it, but, but I liked it. And <clears throat> so wine was a drink that we had. We had it on the dinner table. My dad believed on that. And so I grew up uh, just appreciating that. Um, married uh, a woman that was uh, my high school sweetheart and and her parents loved wine and so uh, it was something very familiar to it and so uh, wine other than drinking it wasn't a part of my life uh, until my family started splitting off going off into all these million different directions my sister started getting married and and living in other parts of the country so i came up with this really bad idea and that was to start a vineyard. Wasn't gonna do a, a winery. Uh, we were gonna start a vineyard. And the idea was that all four of us could own a little piece of this vineyard and you know we could work at it. Um, uh, this shows how naive I was uh, at the moment of, of what it took. Uh, and so I looked around and we lived in, uh, I lived in San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and so did my parents, and and so um, I found this vineyard that uh, in 1974 uh, that was um, uh, it was dilapidated uh, only because it hadn't uh, the owner hadn't drilled a well, and so the the vines didn't have a drink, and they were showing uh, it, it it just looked terrible, like one out of every three vines was dead, and so. And then there was a little house in the middle uh, where my parents were going to live and, and we were going to do this. Um, meanwhile, I was going to continue my career. I wasn't working in one. Uh, I was working uh, actually down in San Diego. And so um, nobody had any money uh, except my dad. He had put away some money. And so uh, we bought this little vineyard, 74. Um, I spent a lot of time there on the weekends and vacations learning how to grow grapes from these Italian uh, guys that uh, worked for us <clears throat> and um, drilled two wells, you know, the vines came back um, and everything was great. Um, and it did kind of work out that um, it brought us together. Um, and. Uh, and then about six years later, and we sold our grapes to Mandavi and Cuvée's own wineries. And, <laughs> and so uh, life was good. Uh, my dad was there all the time and I was commuting. Okay, so uh, my degree was in finance and so um, it didn't take long to figure out that the money wasn't in selling grapes. Not that 
money was the big issue. It was keeping the family closer. Um, but uh, I did the math and I saw how much Mandavi was making on my grapes and blah, blah, blah. And, and so um, one day I was, out, I was out pruning my vineyard and it was rain, drizzly, cold. Um, like it normally is during uh, during pruning season, and um, and so here comes Michael Mandavi, and he drives down the road, and he turns left to go over the Oakfield grade, uh, and he sees me in the vineyard, and he toots his horn, and and he waves, and and I wave, and uh, he goes over the little hill, and I see the. Uh, steam coming out of the tailpipes of his brand new BMW, and <laughs> and, and I I started thinking, you know, that that's it, you know, we're gonna make wine, and so um, bad idea number what three maybe, and so uh, I called my family together, I did all the numbers, I figured out what it was gonna take, um, uh, I I actually. I had him come to uh, San Diego, and I got him drunk, and uh, <laughs> I told the maitre d', don't bring the menus until I tell you. And so anyway, we had bottles and bottles of wine. <laughs> Finally, I brought out my uh, little notes. I said, here's the deal. We, we're going to need to borrow some more money from the bank and blah, blah, blah. And we're going to make this little winery. And, uh, and so they voted to do it, and we were in the wine business. So um, that was in 1979, uh, and so uh, so that was uh, 79, 80. We we went ahead, we uh, built the winery, and 80 was our first harvest, um, and um, and so we're in the wine business, and we finished the. Uh, harvest. It was a harvest from hell. It was hot and uh, everything happened wrong. All the equipment didn't work. It was just terrible. Um, but we're done and we're all sitting around on the concrete uh, having just completed the harvest and um, <clears throat> drinking a beer. My dad comes up in his little golf cart and he goes, uh, uh, hey sport, come here. That was me. And so uh, I go, yeah, what's up, Pop? He goes, uh, I, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and I go, well, you don't want to do what, Pop? He goes, this. And I said, well, Dad, you, look, you're the, you're the dude. You're the, you're the main guy. I just got your back. Um, I got my job in San Diego, which I love. Da, da, da. Um, he goes, you're not listening, son. <laughs> and drove off. And I'm in the wine business. And so... Um, I panicked. Um, I really loved my job in, in San Diego. Um, I didn't want to give it up. We owned a home, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I go back to San Diego after doing a whole bunch of thinking and I asked them for a leave of absence for a year so I could get the winery going and then come back. We leased out our home. Um, we rented a house in San Helena. Uh, and I was in the wine business. Uh, I never went back <clears throat> because I had no idea how um, personal the wine business was. Um, I had breathed life into this little winery. I had made all the decisions right or wrong. 
I had decided the label, how much it would sell for, what varietals we're going to make, um, and how I would market it, and the image, and all this stuff, the name. Um, and so I was in the wine business, and uh, so um, we continued on. Uh, I was full time, um, and it um, and it and it endured, and I, it grew a little bit, and I planted some more vineyards, and and uh, <clears throat> during this time, I'm traveling around selling wine with my wife sometimes, and so we went up to the Pacific Northwest. We went up to Seattle and did some kind of tasting in the early '80s, and um, my wife was um, enamored with. Uh, Pacific Northwest Pinot Noir and so she would bring these little glasses she's so cute she'd bring these little glasses and I'm sitting there pouring all of our wines and she put these little glasses in front of me and uh, I look at it and I said well it's red but it certainly isn't dark red it's light red and um, I cherries and um, tobacco and I got all these beautiful things and so, just like my wife, I fell in love with Oregon Pinot Noir. Um, and so, I had to make it. And so, um, another bad idea um, was to uh, fly up to Oregon. And I'd been, I started looking for years and years. I spent a lot of time here. I, meet all, I, I met all the, the guys, David Lett, Myron Redford, Dick Erath, uh, Dick Ponzi, uh, David Adelsheim. Um, all the the fathers of Oregon wine. Those were my buddies, and and I um, I was spending a lot of time with them and learning and drinking wine. And um, and so I I didn't want another winery. One is always enough for anybody. And so I decided to uh, buy some grapes in Oregon and truck them down uh, to California. Well, it, it didn't work. Uh, I, I had no idea how. Um, how uh, delicate uh, Pinot Noir cultivars are. The grapes, the grape skins are so thin; uh, <clears throat> they don't do anything easily. They're uh, clearly the the brat of the business. I had been working with Cabernet Sauvignon, which is like a piece of leather. The skins, and so you could you could take Cabernet Sauvignon to the moon and make a really pretty good wine out of them. <clears throat> They're so sturdy, and so the. <clears throat> If you want to hear the story about my first time taking the grapes down there, um, maybe later. But uh, so anyway, <clears throat> didn't work out. The wines were dreadful. I made, uh, I, I changed the game plan a little bit, but still, um, I made three or four vintages, and one of them was pretty good. The others were dreadful, and so I realized um, that I had to be invested. I had to be there. Um, and so I started looking for a piece of dirt to, to grow my grapes and, um, and make my wine. It was going to be a small project. I was still going to have Girard, which was my winery in Napa Valley. Um, but I wanted a foothold. I had to make this, this sexier than ever red wine that uh, had cultivate, uh, captivated uh, me and my wife. And so... Spent a lot of time up here, um, did a lot of analysis. Um, that analysis was all done in the libraries, this is way before the internet. And so I spent years and years at libraries trying to figure out um, 
uh, uh, days uh, and hours of sun, weather patterns, rainfall, precip, um, wind direction and speed and timing, um, different um, uh, climate regions. Um, and from what I saw, uh, all my buddies were up north uh, in McMinnville, Dundee area, and it didn't look like the best to me. Uh, what they were, they were affected by these storms that were born off of British Columbia and all those uh, big storms came down the coast and these, um, I call them tentacles of the storm would uh, go into the Van Duzer corridor and smash into the wine country. Mm -hmm. And uh, although most of this was in winter, it started when the uh, trough of, uh, of uh, high pressure, or the ridge of high pressure started conking out. And that's when I was starting to harvest my grapes. And so it didn't look like that was the best place. The best place to me was way farther south where um, a big mountain called Prairie Peak prevented the storms from coming in. Um, and so this is where I was looking. Uh, later on, I had to talk to all my buddies. Um, when I found um, uh, Sunny Mount Ranch, which is my, my ranch now, um, I told all these guys about it. And they're going, what are you doing down there, Steve? What are you, crazy? <laughs> and I said, well, come on down, check it out. Um, a couple of them did. Um, and, and when I was talking to them, they said, why? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Why are you up where you are? Because that doesn't look like the best place to grow grapes to me. And they said, duh, we're up there because that's where the people are. You have, a, you have Portland, a city of, in those days, 700,000 people or so. Now two million or whatever. Um, and we sell our wines on Highway 18 when all the tourists come for the summer. And I go, well, that's not how I'm gonna sell my wine. I already have a winery in California. I'm selling to Chicago and Florida, so I don't need that. Um, and so, um, one day I, I found Sunny Mount Ranch. Uh, it was absolutely perfect. Um, it was sloped to the east. It had the right jory soils. Uh, it was a perfect elevation. It had never been in Christmas trees. Um, it had only been in sheep, so it had 100 years of sheep poop, which was perfect. Um, uh, organic compounds in the soils were uh, extremely high. Um, the only problem was it was really big. I was looking for 20 acres. This was gonna be my, my little, probably single wide trailer, um, a little tiny winery, and uh, maybe a 10 acre vineyard. Um, uh, the ranch was almost 2,000 acres. I wanted 20, uh, so there was a little issue there. <laughs> Just a little number, cha-cha. <clears throat> um, it was bank-owned. And so I go to the bank and I said, look, um, subdivide the place. It's all one parcel now. That's stupid. Um, at least make it 10 200s, and then you can sell it and you'll make more money. And the bank guy said, we don't do subdivisions. <laughs> I go, why? I said, you're in Benton County. Lane County's a little harder. Um, Benton County's so easy. They're so nice down there. Um, 
It's, it'll, it, you, it take you 10 minutes. <clears throat> well, we don't do subdivisions. Um, I told them how stupid they were. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't afford the whole place. Uh, and so uh, I went back to California. And every month I called the bank up and I said, uh, hey, what's going on? And they go, Steve, look, uh, you know, you're, you seem like a nice guy, but you know, you're, you're kind of a flake, and, and, which is true. And you don't have any money, which is really true. And so don't call us anymore. I continued to call for two years and found out that I was the only guy on the radar screen. Nobody else wanted this ranch. Um, in the 80s, everything was going downhill. Mm -hmm. And so um, I stopped calling them after the second year. And a year went by. And then they started calling me. Um, and they called me for two years and then I bought the ranch, the whole thing. Um, and uh, a ridiculously low price for the ranch. Uh, started planting it uh, the next year. Um, Pinot Noir only at, in the beginning. Um, made the wines uh, at Flynn Winery, which is uh, now Firesteed. Um, and um, would probably still be making wine at Flynn had they uh, done a good job of winemaking, but they didn't. Uh, and so um, the, the vineyard grew. Uh, I continued to plant. I love what, uh, what was happening there. Um, I built the winery in '98. Uh, after I stopped doing business with Flynn, and um, and it continued to uh, grow a little bit, up to 28,000 cases or so. Um, almost all of it estate grown, um, and uh, producing uh, mostly Pinot Noir, uh, but I wanted to plant uh, Pinot Blanc, uh, and I would, uh, planted Pinot Gris. I opened the tasting room um, uh, in uh, 98 and uh, you know people came in not a lot because the winery's not located near a city uh, so, but their people started you know coming in and um, they wanted to taste more wines than I had you know if I had two wines they would come in and say well you know there's $5 tasting fee in those days or something like that. Taste two wines. It doesn't make any sense. Down the road, I can taste 12 for $5. I said, well, but these are really good wines. <laughs> and it didn't make uh, much, much sense. Uh, so, um, so here I am. Um, 143 acres of vineyard. Um, now it is all estate ground grapes. Uh, I didn't buy grapes, I didn't sell grapes, um, and um, I sell across the country uh, to distributors and to a couple of countries outside the U.S. Um, I sold Bent Lane, the winery, in January of uh, 18. I kept the vineyard. Um, and uh, I'm 70, <clears throat> 71 years old, and so I decided I want to run the vineyard for another five years. So they agreed to buy the vineyard in five years and let me run it. Um, 
I renamed the vineyard um, Cinco Años Vineyard uh, because I couldn't call it uh, Benton Lane, but the buyer is an old friend of mine, neat guy. I knew him in Napa for years. Uh, they've been great. Um, what else can I tell you? <laughs> so let's back up a little bit. Um, you talked about sort of learning wine from people you, you who you had hired to work on the winery. I'm curious. Um, it, you kind of got into the venture without a whole lot of pre-knowledge. So as you were as you were learning the vineyard, and then as you were learning to make wine, um, were there influencers around to help you, or was it basically like you say, just from book learning and, and trial and error? Uh, mostly the the second. Uh, the vineyard I learned from uh, the Pina family who managed um, uh, the Gerard Vineyard, <clears throat> and so I hung around with them. Um, and they were very pr pragmatic uh, farmers that uh, did a good job. The winemaking, we started out by hiring a consultant, <clears throat> um, Bob Stemmler, who now has, I think he sold his winery, but you can still find Stemmler wines out there. And so um, I hired him to make the first uh, Girard wines and then put together a team after that. Um, Benton Lane does not have a winemaker and I've never had a winemaker. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in one person making one. So I had a team and the team right now is uh, four guys um, uh, and one gal <clears throat> and it's a democracy and that's the way uh, when I owned the winery uh, how we did everything. Mm -hmm. uh, everything was a uh, winery team. Um, and so we do have a uh, enologist on the team who does all the workups, the lab stuff, and then we send a lot of stuff out. But the team tastes everything, um, makes uh, decisions on the blend outs, uh, and I think it makes the wine uh, much more interesting. Um, and then there was a learning curve when I got to Oregon in the vineyard. I continued to do uh, things the way I did them in California and my buddies uh, that were making wine up north um, came down and looked at my vineyard and just shook their head and and said what the hell are you doing <laughs> and I said well I'm doing stuff the way I did in California and in California in those days we used uh, copious amounts of uh, pre-emergent to kill the soil underneath the vine row and so it looked gorgeous. And then we had a, a, a mowed strip in the middles. And that's what everybody did. Our vineyards were gorgeous. Um, in those days, uh, Oregon vineyards were ugly, um, but they were healthy. And so um, my buddies came down, they took me by the hand and they taught me about my, mycorrhiza and nematodes. And they taught me uh, how to uh, grow grapes uh, in ugly vineyards that were really healthy and um, and so uh, you know it was um, uh, an awakening for me uh, that really helped my wines it helped my juice nutrient profiles it helped my ferments mm -hmm. um, uh, and then so so that's how I learned along the way 
as you're going through the transition of you own you own a winery in in California and it's it's got your family name on it and then you're you're kind of falling in love with Oregon and you're going through the tra that transition how did you decide when it how did you decide you were going to go full time to Oregon and leave that behind I got fired <laughs> uh, <clears throat> So I told you how I got in the business. It was this uh, great idea of keeping my family closer together. Well, that didn't turn out to be a really good idea. People always told me, and they tell everybody, don't do business with family. And I, I was too smart to take that advice. The, the wine business, um, there's a lot of jealousies. I did all the work. Uh, I, I ran the winery. I was, I was in charge. Um, and I made all the decisions, uh, some good, some bad. Uh, but what, what my, uh, and my sisters, three sisters and my mom and dad were part owners of this business. And so what they, what they saw was when I traveled around the country, in those days you did winemaker dinners and that was the big deal. Um, it was how you sold wine. And so I would show up in, uh, in the East Coast and I would do a winemaker dinner, say in New York City, and I would invite any sisters that lived around there and they would come and that's what they really thought I did um, and they were jealous because I was out there yakety yakking um, having these beautiful dinner wine dinners at these nice restaurants and then people were coming up asking me to sign bottles god forbid <laughs> afterwards and my sisters were looking at this and they thought that was my job they didn't know what i did because they really didn't care and they never spent time there when we were dragging hoses and we were punching down ferments and doing pump overs and um and barreling down and cleaning up and bottling um and so there was jealousy uh, there was also the fact that um, my sisters would try to be involved by giving me a, a great idea they had for a label. And, and they all did this. And, and so mostly it was a picture of their dog. Um, and so I had to say, look, um, we've got a brand. It's been received. We've been written up. We've got a, our wine served in the White House. We're on our way. And so I can't change the label now. And furthermore, it, it isn't a label that we like. Um, our label may be uh, really ugly to us, but if it resonates with the buyers, that's what we need. Well, that didn't sell very well with my sisters who still wanted their dog on the label. Um, and so there, there were these jealousies. Um, there was also probably some... Um, uh, some sex issues because I was the only ch male child. I was doing all the work and and the three girls, uh, my sisters, really didn't have much to say nor did they want anything to say. Uh, the only thing they they did was they would send all their brats out to work in the <laughs> winery every summer. So I'd have to take these these little guys and you know uh, all they wanted to do was bomb around the vineyard in the three-wheeler. They didn't want to do the actual work. Um, and then, of course, they'd get drunk on the wines. And <clears throat> anyway, it, and so things weren't, weren't doing really well. There were jealousies. Um, 
at about this time, <clears throat> I still ha I had Bent Lane, and I was spending time up here, um, and, and I enjoyed that. Um, but certainly, Gerard was my my first uh, love, and, and we were making wine. I was growing grapes up here, and, and the the vineyard was just starting to come into production, so <clears throat> there wasn't much going on, and it was very small, um, <clears throat> and so. I got a letter from a guy who said he was a rich guy and uh, he loved my wine and he, he lived in Aspen and he was tired of buying it and he wanted to buy my winery. Well, I thought about that and, um, and I threw it in the garbage and he called me and so he started talking to me and he said, look, I'm serious. Um, he said, um, I want you to run it for me. Um, and so um, I'm serious and it'll be a really nice transaction. And so <clears throat> again, I got my family together and they had no idea. My dad did. My dad knew what was gonna happen, but the girls didn't. And so my sisters came. And we all, t we all had different amounts of stock. And so we, we had I had negotiated, but not accepted, uh, a price. And so what I did was I made these little things up with what each uh, sister would, would get um, if this transaction happened. And so uh, I rented a house up at Lake Tahoe, flew them out, and they thought it was going to be a board meeting and that we were all going to drink uh, a lot of wine and argue about <laughs> stuff. And, <clears throat> and I said, well, uh, that's not going to happen. We have an offer to purchase the place. And they all start crying, um, crying big tears. And they go, how could you think of selling the family winery for money? <laughs> and they're all crying. Um, and I go, well, uh, here's the deal. Um, I controlled the vote, but I wasn't going to do that. I said, look, I control the vote because I have most of the stock, um, but I'm not going to do that. It's going to be five votes, one vote per person. Uh, my mom didn't get a vote because she was crazy. <laughs> um, and so, um, they go, oh, I can't believe you're going to sell the one. And so I handed out these envelopes. And they didn't know. They didn't know if it was going to be $3,000 or $3 million. They had no concept. Um, and so they opened up these envelopes. And I said, by the way, before you open the envelopes, I'm going to vote no. I'm going to vote no. I don't want to sell. They all opened the envelopes. The vote was four to one. <laughs> um, and so we sold Gerard. I did run it for three years for the new owner. Um, <clears throat> and each year, um, he was nice. He was a nice guy. Each year, um, he needed me a little less. And I wanted to spend more time in Oregon. And so I went to him and I said, look, can I, can I take a week, a month off, and you dock my pay and I'll go to Oregon? Yeah. Next, can I take two weeks off? And, and so finally he called me and he says, get your butt out of here. <laughs> you want to go to Oregon, don't you? <laughs> um, and so uh, that was it. Uh, I was full-time uh, in Oregon. That happened in uh, 98. Um, and so, was it difficult, I think, uh, was part of your question to sell the family name? Sure. 
Um, but he wasn't going to buy it without it because the wine had equity. Um, I knew I couldn't use it up here, uh, and so I had to come up with a new name. Yeah, it was tough for all of us mm -hmm. um, to see, but I knew that he was going to put a lot of money into it, which he had, and that he was going to make even better wine. So that, um, but I told the kids when they all voted to sell it, we were, we were going to have to sell the name was part of it. Bittersweet. I'm curious, with the amount of time you've spent in both industries, if you can give me a kind of a brief comparison contrast of California wine uh, industry versus Oregon wine industry. Uh, sure. Um, you know, when I was in the uh, California wine business, I think it was the best, the best time, because I still have friends there, of course, and so I go back. Um, it was in the uh, 80s. The 80s were uh, still very rural. The Napa Valley was rural. There were tourists, but not many. Um, my daughter used to ride her horse over to Oakville to get a sandwich at the Oakville Grocery. Um, I used to, uh, you know, it, it was just laid back. Um, everybody helped everybody. Uh, we all did business together, but we cooperated. Uh, I told you the 80 was the harvest from hell. Everything went wrong, in, including I blew up my bladder press that I had just bought. It was an old beat up Wilma's bladder press and I blew the, um, the bladder. And so I, when, you, when you blow up your press, you, you're out of business with white wine. You can still make red wine, but I was making white wine too. And so you couldn't even process it. The grapes are just gonna go to waste. And so I'm looking for a handgun to take my life. Uh, and here comes this, this trailer in my driveway and it's got a Wilma's press on the back of it. And I go over to the guy and I, he didn't speak any English, but I said, you know, what's, what's the deal? And he said, well, Roy Raymond, from Raymond Winery, who I'd never met, had heard about your problem, and he had this press. <laughs> and so that was my introduction to the, to the Napa Valley. And so obviously, um, we all helped each other. Uh, I took that as a, a learning point, and so I helped everybody out. And I'd call up um, Doug Schaefer and, and tell him I needed a sack of corks and sure, come on over, pick it up. And we'd trade parts and there was all this uh, camaraderie. Um, it did then become more civilized um, as I went along, but still the business was great. Uh, we got together, we, uh, we had a little trade organization, uh, we traveled around uh, spreading the word about Napa uh, and really put Napa on the map as probably the most prestigious uh, uh, AVA in the United States. And we did that together and, um, and so that was great. Um, so by the time I sold the winery it had become a, a place of millionaires and billionaires, um, more you know, helicopters all the time, um, more tourists, still a lovely place. Um, the, the, the transfer to Oregon, uh, Oregon was very anti-California in those days. Um, I had, uh, when I was spending a lot of time 
uh, up here with my friends and shopping for dirt. Um, I had a lot of very nice uh, notes left on my windshield. <laughs> I had the air let out of my tires a couple times. Um, I had a lot of uh, hand gestures left in the dust on my back window. <laughs> Uh, and I, uh, I was asked to talk at a bunch of meetings where there was a lot of ugly questions and heckling and stuff. So um, they weren't very happy uh, about uh, Californians coming up to Oregon to buy dirt. Uh, and, and I understood that because the first couple guys that came up there um, from Napa Valley weren't the best ambassadors. Uh, and they um, and so they left an ugly mark. So that was my um, entrance. But you know, when I got down to it, it it um, uh, it was a nice place to grow grapes. I had to learn how to do that. Uh, I wasn't uh, readily received in the area. It took about 20 years uh, before I was recognized as um, still a transplant from California but sort of an Oregon grape grower and winemaker. Um, and, um, you know, I was then uh, welcomed into the scene and, and uh, treated just like I was in the early days of, of California. How much of what Oregon is going through in the last 15 years is reminiscent of the, the growth in Napa? Do you see similarities there, the kind of rapid growth and the, the money? Um, yes, uh, but certainly not to the same uh, extent. Uh, Cal uh, Oregon had had very wisely uh, decided to make zoning of um, uh, growable lands so that you couldn't put a house on it or a hotel or a McDonald's or, or something like that. And so they had the, this uh, great um, uh, land use that they had put into effect and and so that really prevented a lot of that uh, from happening um, and that was uh, that was great to see um, the nice thing is I was on the uh, founding uh, board of the Oregon Wine Board for five years and so I told them what what was maybe coming down the pike mm -hmm. in a long time uh, the tourists um, the the pressure uh, from uh, moneyed people to put hotels and restaurants and Burger Kings um, near the wineries because uh, we were going to get um, all the things that we were fighting uh, in, uh, in California. I told them that um, I had been through that, it had been ugly, uh, and it had kind of changed the um, uh, the way business was done. I told them about the wine train coming up. Uh, I told them about uh, water rights, that we had no concerns about that, but that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. I told them about uh, uh, tourism and how that was going to manifest itself um, and uh, the pressure on zoning uh, and how politicians could change what they had done. Um, because all of the moneyed interests were, were saying, hey, let me put in a hotel, let me put in a, a spa, let me do this. Um, and so they heard uh, what was coming down the pike. I certainly told them a lot of times. <laughs> and uh, 
I think that made him aware of the risks that uh, might be uh, coming coming their way in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of your notable accomplishments here, Ben Lander? What are you, what are you proudest of uh, of your time here? Um, you know, picking a, a, an individual area that was out of the mainstream um, certainly made um, was a risk um, because everybody was uh, in the old days was saying, you know, why are you down there in no man's land? There's nobody down there, um, and yet uh, Ben Lane received more top 100 wines of the world. Uh, than any other Oregon wine winery for still wines in the first 10 years we were here. Um, and so uh, that was uh, sort of a confirmation uh, that I had been on the right track. The second was to have Ed King, who uh, had uh, more money than uh, all of us put together, uh, come down here rather than go up there. It was a it was a shock to them as well. <clears throat> um, and then the last was to have uh, Steve Price, who was the guru of Oregon viticulture. Mm -hmm. uh, he started the viticulture school at OSU. Um, he uh, then retired and now makes a ton of money traveling all over the world teaching viticulture. When he retired, he wanted to buy a vineyard. and. He had all the doors open to him. Everybody wanted him uh, to buy uh, some of their dirt. Uh, and all the guys up north were certainly uh, looking forward to him landing there. And, and he bought my land, uh, <laughs> some of my land. Um, that, was a, that was a huge um, a, a step to uh, confirming what I had thought mm -hmm. uh, all along. Uh, it's been a great ride. Um, it's been uh, extremely enjoyable. Uh, I always loved the Pacific Northwest. My dad was uh, born in the Pacific Northwest from Washington State. I went to school in Washington State. Uh, and so I always wanted to be back here. I was never a California guy in my heart. I always loved it in, up here and I spent my vacations up here. Um, and so it was great to get back here. You talked about you know taking having your neighbors take a long time to accept you as a neighbor. You don't have a lot of wine neighbors here. I'm curious why, in your perspective, why it hasn't grown more. Uh, this wine area hasn't blown up the way like Dundee or Newburgh have. Good question. I, I don't really know. <clears throat> I don't really know why. I I think that the um, the acceptance and the uh, the prestige of the North uh, Willamette Valley, especially after the introduction of those five sub-AVAs, mm -hmm. was what people uh, were looking for. Uh, a lot of people just wanted to be there thinking that um, that uh, land was uh, more valuable. And I believe it probably is for that, for that reason. Um, since then, a lot of wineries have uh, come into the area. They've uh, a lot of people talked to me and when they were in their search asking me why I was here. Uh, they read a lot of the information that um, was available that I had come up with for why I had made my decision. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and I think 
um, they are uh, they're in agreement that it was the right thing to do. Over the last um, 30 years, I have um, looked at the, uh, the weather data um, and the last 20 years since the internet, I sleep with uh, my laptop next to me in bed uh, looking at the Doppler radar. And what I've seen over those 30 years is this perfect model of what I thought was going to happen. And I see these orange blobs moving right towards Benton Lane, uh, <clears throat> running into Prairie Peak, um, being bounced up by high pressure from California and Southern Oregon, and these storms uh, not uh, going to Benton Lane, but crossing Highway 5, either in Salem or way up by Newburgh. Mm -hmm. um, it worked. <laughs> I mean, it worked. Um, uh, the ranch that I bought was called Sunny Mount Ranch for that reason. It had been known as Sunny Mount Ranch for 100 years because you could stand on it and because of the shielding from Prairie Peak, <clears throat> you could look at uh, Eugene and you could look at Corvallis, which you can see from the top of my property, and it's raining. Mm -hmm. And yet they were in the sun. Um, <clears throat> the pilots used to, old time pilots, used to call it the keyhole because there's a, a big white tower on my property that's an FAA tower. Um, and you can see it from everywhere. Um, and the pilots would fly to that, uh, which was, it was usually above the fog line and the rain, knowing that it was going to be clear. They called it the keyhole. And then they could go in underneath the clouds and land either at Corvallis or Eugene. Um, all these things kind of were um, the proof that um, what I thought was going to happen did happen. I'm curious, as uh, you're not a trained meteorologist or, or climatologist, I'm curious how you decided what to look for. Well, um, if you're in the vineyard business, uh, you have to be part meteorologist, <laughs> uh, especially in Napa where we had uh, frost issues. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't have frost issues here. I mean, we do, but uh, we, we all plant on the hillside. Uh, and so the frost rains down and frosts the, the land below and not your vineyard. <clears throat> but you have to be aware of uh, rain events uh, when you're in bloom and frost and wind events. Um, and so I, I knew what to, what to look for. Um, the problem was that it wasn't easy to find and I had to go through all these uh, textbooks and I had to actually uh, phone some of these uh, uh, meteorology stations that were located at Corvallis Airport and Eugene Airport that had been tracking all this data um, and uh, put it all together in this huge binder uh, and uh, I, uh, you know that that was the stuff that uh, pointed to these weather phenomenon mm -hmm. that maybe by this dirt rather than dirt up north. Sure. I'm curious about the inspiration behind your label, that when you decided to design your label and your, and your logo. I actually hired a 
label designer that was uh, crazy. And uh, he still is crazy. And he's still designing labels. But he hadn't designed a label up till then. Um, Probably because he was crazy, and but I didn't want my wine label to look like a wine label, because mm -hmm. uh, all wine labels kind of looked the same in those days. And so I, I talked to this guy, and um, he said immediately, he said, "I got it, I got it." He said, "I've been trying to sell this label forever. It's a, it's actually a postage stamp." And he said, I took it from the, the old postage stamp with the up to, upside down Jenny in it. Um, and he said, um, in 1924, they printed this stamp and it had a, a, a Jenny airplane in it. And they printed one sheet up with a plane upside down. And he said, that one sheet got out. And he said, now it's, uh, there's eight of them left and it's the most valuable U.S. stamp ever. They're worth like a million bucks or something. And he said, I want to use that and take the Jenny thing out and put your vineyard in the middle. And I said, well, let me see it. And so he, he drew, drew it up. The vineyard shot in the middle of the bottle didn't look at all like my vineyard because he'd never came up here and saw it. <laughs> But he, uh, he put some rolling little hills in the vineyard in there. And it was really cool <clears throat> where it said, United States Postage, he put Benton Lane, uh, where the uh, 24, uh, uh, 1924 was, I put the vintage. Um, and it was iconic, it was, um, it was timeless, it was perfect. I'd never seen anything like it. Um, I had to make it a little bit bigger so you could actually read it. Mm -hmm. um, and then I used all different colors from my different varietals and it was fab. And I've still never, I've still never changed it. I've never had to modernize it. I've had it for 30 years. Sure. Um, and the cool thing is I'll walk into a wine shop and with uh, walls and walls of wine, I can see my kids. You know, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> They're easy to identify. What was the reaction from the marketplace? Uh, great. Um, <clears throat> people loved it. Um, I didn't have any uh, adverse reaction. Certainly a lot of copying. A whole bunch of people copied the stamp label, uh, realizing that it was so uh, identifiable. Uh, but um, uh, people loved it. In fact, people loved it uh, and recognized it more than they recognized the name. And so I was flying around all over the country uh, trying to sell wine in those days. And <clears throat> I'd be on these long trips of just, you know, selling wine. Uh, and so <clears throat> I was on my way home from one of these trips. And I had a briefcase. We all carried briefcases in those days. Nobody does anymore. Um, I had a briefcase. And it had um, my label on it. Um, and so... Um, the lady next door to me, uh, next, next to me, wanted to chat, and uh, I didn't. And, but uh, she said, so what do you do? And I go, I make wine. She goes, oh, great. You know, and I go, oh, that was a mistake. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to talk about wine. And she said, what's the name of your winery? I said, Benton Lane. She said, I never heard of it. And I go, good. We don't have, to, we don't have anything to talk about. <laughs> and so I pulled out my briefcase, and here's my label. And she goes, that's my favorite wine. And I said, well, that's my winery, Ben Lane. She said, no, no, I call it the stamp one. <laughs> she didn't know the name, but she knew the label. Um, and so I went home, and the first thing I did was I had 
business cards made up with um, Steve Gerard, my name, and my my profession, embalmer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I put on my luggage. So nobody ever wanted to talk to an embalmer. Okay. Sorry. I'm curious about, you mentioned your your winemaking philosophy earlier of kind of the team democratic effort. I'm curious how you came to decide that was the best way to make wine. Um, just because uh, I had winemakers and I was part of the process um, and I saw some uh, what I thought were bad decisions. Um, you know, if you have a winemaker and you're not, and I wasn't a trained winemaker and they were, they're really like a demigod Mm -hmm. And um, they can do what they want, um, and they they can give you a very technical um, rationale for doing what they want, even though you don't like it. It's like owning a restaurant and having a chef and not being a chef yourself. And you say, I don't, you know, why'd you put this uh, spice in the soup? Oh, well, you have to because this, 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 this. Um, and the winemakers would do that. Oh, no, no, I have to put that in there be <clears throat> because the diglycerides will bind with the proteins. And I go, what? Um, and so I, I said, no, I'm going to be part of the, the process. And my wife, who has a really good palate, I said, she's going to be part of the process. And we're going to sit around, we're going to make these decisions. The winemakers didn't like it, um, but uh, they got used to it because it was, you know, um, find someplace else to work. That's how we're going to do it. And so uh, the blending decisions, which are really important in winemaking, um, uh, and, the, and the key decisions uh, of wh whether to treat or not to treat, uh, were made by um, a committee and it was difficult to teach them that I really wanted a de democracy. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want them to s say what I, would, I was going to say and agree with me. Um, and so it's great. Um, uh, I think the wines are much more vibrant, they're much more interesting because what will happen is somebody will, on the team, will defend a, a nuance in the wines that may be very delicate and doesn't stand out and doesn't impress people. Um, but, uh, but this person would say, no, I, I want the team to go back and uh, review that, um, <clears throat> that dynamic in the wine, because I think it's, it's important and that we preserve that and don't blend it out. Um, and the team would do that, and uh, sometimes it was clear that they had made the right, the right call. Um, because when you're tasting wine, just like when you're judging wine, it's the, the wine that's the boldest, the most masculine, um, uh, the most flavored, the most concentrated, that's, that's going to get your palate to jump up and down. And that's not always the, the best wine. And so what you want is, um, you want people to uh, identify these nuances that uh, make the wine much more interesting. And, and so the, the team is a, um, it's really a good a concept. And the other thing is that making wine all my life, you, um, you realize that uh, I get up every morning, I make my tea. Well, I always make it the same, but some mornings it tastes like hell. And it's not the tea, it, it's me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so how could you report to work 
And when we're doing our blend outs, we have to taste 70 barrels a day. That's a lot of wine, a lot of tasting, that's a lot of work. Um, uh, and there's no way you could do that if your mouth was off. And so when we get together, um, you know, we kind of know we're having a bad mouth day. And so we taste the first wine and, and sure enough, you just, I, I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna smell because sometimes your smell will work and your taste won't, um, but I'm not gonna talk and I'm not gonna vote. Um, and, and so uh, in those instances, we can carry on, whereas we would have to stop or probably because of ego, somebody would just say, oh no, I'm gonna continue on, my palate's fine, you know, <laughs> and make bad decisions. Sure. So you've talked about a lot, a lot of different aspects of the job today between vineyard work, winery work, sales work. Uh, what's your favorite part? What's your favorite part of the, of the, of the job? Uh, the vineyard, clearly, that, that's what I um, convinced the, the buyers uh, to let me continue to do. Um, uh, I love that uh, the most, but my job has, has many parts, uh, has had. Uh, clearly, um, the head of uh, the wine team uh, the head of the vineyard team, I also have a team there, uh, but I also do the boss junk. Uh, so that's hiring, firing, um, insurance, all the payroll, mm -hmm. uh, financials, uh, licensing, um, uh, complaints, you know, and that wasn't much fun. Um, and then there's the whole dynamic of sales. Mm -hmm. That was something that I was weakest at. Uh, and um, the great thing about selling my winery was that these guys are great at it. I was terrible at it. Uh, and, and so I get to um, still be close to the wine team, uh, taste the wines, taste the blend outs, uh, but spend most of my time in the vineyard and I don't have to worry about sales. That's pretty nice. Oh, it's sweet. <laughs> it's the best. Um, it's the best. Um, and so, you know, I, I was a lot busier in those days. I was always here because there's always something to do. Mm -hmm. um, and now I get to do other things because I'm, uh, I've been relieved of a, a lot of the stuff I used to have to be busy with. Is that why you decided to sell or part of why you decided to sell? Yeah, certainly. Um, Again, 71 years old, my wife uh, was asking me every day what my exit strategy was, knowing very well that I didn't have one, and so I would lie and uh, tell her some BS, and she never bought it. Uh, <clears throat> so then she said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to, you know, uh, what I found was every year I could do just a little bit less because mm -hmm. of my age. And so... I worked the bottling line, I worked uh, in Crush, uh, I was right there on the front lines. And all of a sudden I couldn't, I couldn't uh, wrap the pallets. And so um, I bought a pallet wrapper. Um, and then I couldn't stack the cases because um, of my back. And so I, I got edged out of things. I could still drive the fork. Yeah, but that's what I was relegated to. Um, and, uh, and so I'm thinking ahead. And so next year, what's it going to be? Is, is getting on and off the fork going to be a problem? Um, and so um, 
and so my wife came up with the idea of um, why, you know, because if you own a, a winery this size, 30,000 cases in Oregon, which is white hot, you're getting a letter every week or an email saying, I want to buy your winery. Is it for sale? Mm -hmm. And they all just go in the trash because I would never sell to a big corporation that was going to clean out all my employees mm -hmm. and you know, uh, probably prostitute the quality of, of the one. And so she said, why don't you call your buddy, uh, who is one of my good friends. He is buying wineries. Um, he's, still a, he's still a guy I trust. And so I did. I called him up and I said, hey, you know, you want a winery in Oregon? Because here's the deal. And he said, oh my God, I can't believe it. He said, that's perfect. He said, what do you want? And I said, here's what I want to do. And um, he said, we'll make it happen. And it was so easy. And it all worked out perfectly. What do you hope to see Benton Lane go now in the future with this sort of new management, with you still a part of it? Um, I don't, I don't uh, really think about that. I know these guys are, are really good. I know uh, I've tasted their other wines and enjoyed them over the years. And they make really good wine. Um, they, um, they don't um, uh, prostitute the brand by making a billion cases. Mm -hmm. um, they might ramp up uh, quantity just a little bit, but quality uh, with it. They have the f financial power to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't tell them what to do. I think it's, you know, the winery's theirs. They're very nice about coming to me and, and saying, hey, we're thinking about making a change to the, a little change to the label. What do you think? I go, I don't think about it. <laughs> um, when they showed it to me, I think it's, it's miraculous. I think they did a beautiful job uh, of, uh, of increasing the uh, class of the, of the label. It's a very small change. Mm -hmm. I don't think about it, it's, it's theirs. I think about the vineyard a lot and how I can grow even better grapes um, and things that I want to do, um, but I always talk to them about it as well. Uh, but they're not so much in the vineyard as they are into the winery and the sales aspects mm -hmm. of things. So it's, it's a perfect partnership. It's really cool. So you talked about you sort of have five more years in the vineyard. Uh, yep. what, else are you, what else are your future plans? What else do you want to do with your time now? Well, I never had much time to, um, to do the things that I love, and that's uh, <clears throat> boating. I have uh, three boats in the lake right now. I never got to use one of them. Um, I went out last night and sailed for three hours. So I'm going to spend a lot of time on the boats. Um, I love to cook. Um, I want to do more of that. I still do the pizza oven here, even though I don't, I don't own the place. But uh, I just love doing that. Um, <clears throat> haven't had a chance to read. And that's all I want to do. I don't want to travel, but I, I want to I spend time here um, uh, boating. I ride a motorcycle. I want to spend more time doing those things. And, and that's what I did yesterday. And uh, that's what I'm going to do this afternoon. <laughs> Sounds pretty nice. We talked a little bit earlier about um, sort of the comparing and contrasting California and Oregon. I'm curious, is the Oregon wine industry in a, in a better place now than it was when you came into it? Sure, I think so. Um, you know, we uh, when I was on the wine board, we started a uh, research program 
because we've got different growing conditions than California does. We've got different pests than California uh, has. We use different uh, sign wood clones and cultivars than California does. And so we were, while, while Davis was looking at all the uh, different problems, UC Davis, um, naturally they're gonna be looking at California first because that's who's paying the bill. And so, yeah, we started looking at things that were uh, more of a, a problem uh, for us uh, up here than they are in California. Uh, a phylloxera, birds, uh, deer, um, uh, we we don't we didn't have the viruses in those days, and so we needed to take a look at at those. We're starting to get uh, some of the viruses that California had, um, and uh, and you know we've I, I think that the the wine board. Luckily, I was a part of that. Uh, has done a great job. They filled the need, and they're doing great marketing. Um, uh, it's it's fabulous what they've done, and they've really uh, uh, lit the fuse for for Oregon in terms of you know it's a small state. We have a small wine business, but um, they have uh, spread the word around globally. Uh, so I, a year ago, I was in London and and I walked into a a beautiful uh, wine store and. I started uh, saying, you know, I make wine, and uh, she knew I was a gringo right away, just, you know, because they can tell. Um, and so uh, she said, well, we're, we're not buying any um, uh, American wines uh, right now. You know, they don't sell very well, so uh, take a hike. Um, uh, and I said, well, uh, and, then she, and then she said, well, what part of uh, California are you from? I said, I'm not. A, I grow grapes in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. She stopped and she said, come on in my office. And she spent 45 minutes with me. She had told me to leave when I was from California and now I was from Oregon. She wanted to talk to me for 45 minutes. Um, and that's a, kind of a, a, a reception that we're getting. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, really uh, from, the, uh, from the wine board. I think they, they created that. And the other thing is uh, we're now embracing Chardonnay. We never did because Oregon Chardonnays were horrible uh, when I got here 30 years ago. And there was no reason for it except for the, uh, the guys that came up here. My buddies were all ex-California hippies and they didn't have any money. And so they bought the wrong clone. They brought the terrible clone mm -hmm. that grew well, but it didn't taste very good. Mm -hmm. And so now we've got these really sexy clones for Chardonnay. <clears throat> and so the whole world is now saying, oh, my God, um, you're going to make Oregon Chardonnay. And I go, well, you know, Chardonnay is the child of Pinot Noir. It's not a California varietal. Um, uh, it, it's the child of, 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 Char of Pinot Noir, and so it grows beautifully in Pinot Noir country, which is where I am. And so now the whole world is going, this is going to be great because we'll have a Burgundian-style Chardonnay to compare with the California hot climate, um, a high pH mm -hmm. Chardonnay. Um, and so, you know, things are, 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 are going great, and... Um, 
And it's interesting because uh, right now Oregon's getting more press than California. <laughs> nanny, nanny, nanny. <laughs> <laughs> what are some other, besides size, what are some of the biggest changes you've noticed in the Oregon industry uh, that, that have taken place since you've been a part of it? Um, well, the I think probably size and money uh, are the biggest ones. We've certainly gotten uh, bigger uh, companies coming in, uh, Kendall Jackson, um, uh, the tobacco company, the Body Wrath. Mm -hmm. I mean, those were uh, really wake-up calls uh, to all of us because I don't think anybody wanted that to happen. We thought that was going to be the uh, harbinger of bad things to come. Um, it happened, and it really hasn't. Uh, uh, changed things dramatically, but certainly bought a lot of brought a lot of money mm -hmm. to the table. Um, and the other thing that I've seen is a lot more wineries interested in growing grapes. Mm -hmm. When I came here 30 years ago, there were wineries that m bought grapes and made wine, and growers that grew grapes and sold them to wine. And there wasn't wineries that grew grapes. Um, and so a lot of people are realizing how important that dynamic is uh, to make better quality wine. And the other thing is, um, is quality. I, I, I mean, the, the wines that were made here when I got here were dreadful. I mean, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. There were some really pretty wines. Um, but there were some really dreadful ones. People uh, getting into the business with no budget and didn't have time to learn how to make wines, or <clears throat> not having um, the the advice from a lab on what to do to clean that wine up when there were bugs in it. Um, I actually started a program for the a wine board that was a, a program to give these guys a hotline to call. Um, because I, I went around tasting wines that were, that were flawed and, and so flawed that no one was going to like them. Mm -hmm. um, and there was no reason for that. And so we, we set up a hotline so that uh, when people were making wine and they tasted this dreadful juice and they didn't know what to do, they could call somebody and they didn't have to identify themselves. They could even send us a sample. And there were six winemakers that donated their time around the state of Oregon. And we would take calls uh, fr uh, from these guys. And we didn't care who they were. And we'd say, you know, we'd ask them the numbers. We'd ask them what the colors were and how they had treated the wine. And then we'd give them tips on how to bail out uh, this product. <clears throat> and then sometimes we'd ask them for a sample. Um, and they didn't have enough money to take it to a lab, so we'd do the workups on it and call them back and say, here's how to treat it or something. So the, uh, that's one thing. That, the other thing that was really important was learning how to mitigate the varieties uh, that happen with Mother Nature's perverse sense of humor. <laughs> sure. Um, the differences in vintages was appalling in the 70s and 60s and early 80s. Appalling. We had 
83, maybe the best vintage ever, 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 ever in Oregon, followed by 84, the worst vintage ever, ever, ever. <clears throat> and so it was, it was very damaging to have uh, wine writers fall in love with the 83 wines and just go gonzo over them, um, just <clears throat> to have the next vintage and have them say, this is undrinkable juice. And so we got smarter and we learned how to mitigate uh, the vintages. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that came from when we, when the wineries learned to grow grapes. Because when you're growing grapes, you can mitigate and making wine out of it. You can change things in the vineyard while you're watching the vines grow because you know it's going to be an early year. You have <clears throat> late bud break. You know you're going to be picking in October when the weather's starting uh, to um, gum up a little bit. And so you want to throw more fruit on the ground. Mm -hmm. You want to keep the best positions. You want to keep the ripest clusters. Um, you want to throw some potassium on. We've learned that. We've learned how to make um, better wines out of bad vintages. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. What do you see happening in the next 10 or 10 or 20 years in the Oregon wine industry? What, what changes, what growth do you see? Um, certainly <clears throat> um, a, lot more, a lot more growth. There's still a, a lot of plantable land that's probably fairly inexpensive. Um, we've got water up here. Mm -hmm. California doesn't have water. And that's why a lot of people are shopping up here. Um, now, we don't need it right now. Um, I don't water my vines. I water them by hand by, for the first two years, the babies, and then after that they're on their own. Um, and, but in the future with global warming, uh, who knows? Um, I think it's probably going to be the case that um, you're going to want to have a drip system so that you could give them a drink uh, from time to time uh, on those really warm years. <clears throat> the wines we made from the hot years, 14, 15, 16, um, were, were sensational um, without water. Mm -hmm. um, but um, in the future, we might want to uh, mitigate that <clears throat> just because of the alk levels. We may want to keep the alcohol levels a little bit lower. Um, but we're learning so much on how to do things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're, we're a lot smarter than we were. We're more inquisitive. We have the internet. Uh, we, we have the ability to travel and we can go to New Zealand. Uh, we can go to Burgundy and, and <clears throat> although those guys are coming here and learning a lot more than <laughs> we're learning from them. But there's still this um, the internet is, a, is an incredible learning device, as, as you all know. Um, and so we're going to be uh, growing grape, uh, gra grape smarter. We're going to be making uh, better wines uh, smarter. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I think that's, that's going to be in the positive direction. Uh, you know, there's, there's also with te technology, there's things you can do to the wine that don't make better wine that, mm -hmm. that make uh, much much worse wine, but um, m make a uh, unpalatable wine sell at a cheap price, and uh, that's maybe the downside of, of that. But um, 
but I'm really optimistic. Uh, Oregon's white hot now, and I think it's going to continue. I'm glad I'm going to at least be a part of it from the sidelines. Sure. What are the biggest challenges it faces? Uh, the biggest challenges are marketing challenges. Uh, we've got the grape growing, um, although um, <clears throat> if the um, uh, viruses, if we if we get uh, PD, if we get um, you type a dead arm fan leaf, um, uh, uh, red blotch, uh, we don't have those right now. If we get them, we're going to have <clears throat> we're going to have to solve that. Um, but California's already in that mood, mode, so we're going to have to uh, take their playbook and, and use it. The big uh, ch uh, challenges are marketing challenges. Marketing is uh, a real pain right now. As you see, um, the um, <clears throat> distributors um, uh, joining each other, gobbling each other up. Uh, I think where in, in states where there used to be 40 distributors, there's now 14 in some states. Uh, and so you, uh, how do you get their attention? Um, that's one of the reasons that uh, I sold my winery is I had, <clears throat> I had my winery and even though I was at, at a good size, I was trying to get the attention of distributors that had the big bully brands. And so I'd go to them, I'd fly into Chicago and say, hey guys, you know, can you ramp up my sales a little bit? You know, I need to sell a little bit more, maybe 10, 15% more. And they go, oh yeah, Steve, we love you. We love your wines. Uh, get on the plane assured that we're gonna do your job for you. And it was just <laughs> BS. Um, because right behind me uh, walks uh, Joe Gallo and he says, who is that? Well, that's a little guy from uh, Oregon. They said, well, forget him. I pay for your trucks. Uh, and it's hard to compete with that. Sure. It's really hard. Uh, and how do, you, how do you get to the consumer? And what brands do, do they buy? And how do you get, how do you get that guy that has a wine shop to take one of those down and put years up. Huge challenge. Sure. Uh, selling isn't much fun. Um, and it's, in the old days, uh, it was uh, very easy because you, you had a new wine and a new label and, and guys would, would taste it and they'd say, how much is it? And they'd look at the label and they'd say, it's great. You know, I'm gonna buy it. You know, I'm gonna tell the story, you know? Um, not, not so easy anymore. So what, what advice would you have for someone entering the industry today? Uh, don't do it. <laughs> uh, I have a lot of people calling me um, uh, and coming into the area and what they want is um, a retirement project. They want to own five acres and they want to um, uh, make a little wine and, and open up a little retail room. And, and what they don't understand is uh, how much time that takes. And so they, they do that and I help them. I help them a lot. I teach them how to grow grapes and make wine. And, and whatever they need, I, I try to help them because uh, we need those guys. But what they, what they realize is then they're the one that's sitting behind a, a little tiny tasting bar uh, on uh, Saturday and Sunday 
um, waiting for somebody to come in. Mm -hmm. So they do that uh, for four or five months and they realize that they don't have a life because on the weekdays they're working either in their little vineyard or uh, maybe making wine and then on the weekend they're selling it behind a little tasting bar. Um, and so they, they get um, uh, disillusioned, <clears throat> they hire somebody to do that and they lose the personal touch and then they have to pay an employee. Um, so um, <clears throat> what I would suggest they do is reverse it. Do the marketing kind of first. You can do that by um, you know, um, buying wines and blending them and there, you can find people to help you navigate through that and start small and have a, a label that makes sense, have a story that makes sense, and see if you can sell it. Mm -hmm. See if you can go to a restaurant and say, hey, here's the story behind this, taste the wine, here's the price, here's the label, what do you think? Um, and then as you get traction, then increase it. Um, uh, people don't want to do that. <clears throat> they want to they want to buy a l little uh, double wide trailer and have a little vineyard next to it and uh, start out doing that. And that's not um, that's not so easy. Um, I I've got the best job on the planet. I know that. I've thought that for thirty uh, for forty six years. Um, I don't regret ever doing it. It's the best of all jobs on the planet. So I highly recommend it to people, but there are some minefields out there that you have to learn to tiptoe mm -hmm. through. Um, uh, and uh, if you do your homework, um, you realize that you're going to be uh, writing checks for seven years before you get your first check back. People don't understand that. You got to plant vines. You got to nurture them. And then you got to make a wine out of them or sell the grapes. And so you have to either have money or a banker that loves you. <laughs> uh, if you don't have much cash flow, you're gonna you're just gonna run out of gas, and um, you're gonna run out of cash way way too early. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it, it's a great it's a great business to get into. But it's a long term commitment. And the other thing is to do it for the family. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've got kids who want to work in the vineyard, kids who like the idea of um, maybe not making a quick fortune, uh, working with their hands instead of banging on a computer, um, if that's the case, you know, you might be um, in line to, to do that and have the ability to pass that on. There are families that have done exactly that. Mm -hmm. And the kids take over from the parents, um, but there's an awful lot of them that don't, and I'm one of them. My, my daughter uh, didn't want anything to do with the wine business. Um, and so I only have one child. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm in the position to do what I did. Um, uh, but uh, again, best job ever. But there are some uh, some speed bumps. Last question for you. You mentioned earlier uh, the story about your first time taking grapes from, from working <laughs> in California. So let's hear it. Okay, so I come up here. I'm buying grapes, taking them to my California winery, and so 
Um, I know that I can't really ship the grapes. I'm that smart. Uh, but n not smart enough not to do it. Um, and so I come up here with my, my big truck. I've got this big truck and I put my poly tanks on the back of the truck and I drive up here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, destem at a winery, uh, Bethel Heights Winery. I call up um, Bethel Heights, really nice guys. This is in... Uh, 83, I guess, 1983. And so they're going to let me use their um, destemmer. And I'm going to pump um, the, the grapes into these poly tanks. Um, and um, I'm going to leave some expansion room in the tanks. Um, I'm going to do that during the day. And so I leave it five, five o'clock at night. And um, we're going to drive like hell uh, all night uh, to California. So um, I do. I contract uh, for some grapes, 10 tons. Um, I get to, uh, to um, <clears throat> the winery, and uh, the vineyard guy shows up. He doesn't have 10 tons. He has 14 tons. He pulls the, the old trick. Uh, well, I, I just thought you might need more. Well, I didn't order more. Um, well, what am I going to do with them now? You got to take them, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I took them, I, um, and then I found out um, uh, when I went to uh, the winery, I said, what, so where's your uh, destemmer? My destemmer is about the size of a half of this room. Theirs was about this long and had a hand crank. <laughs> And so we started hand cranking. And so I thought we would finish at 5 p.m. At 5 p.m., um, we were just getting started. We went until 2 in the morning, uh, took a little break um, uh, for a nap, and then went back to work and finished at 5 in the morning. Buttoned up the tanks. Now they're full. We start driving to California. Um, the sun comes up. It's hotter than hell. Um, the tanks, uh, the, the wine starts fermenting and expanding. I stop, I have to open the tanks because they're starting to bulge. I have to open them up. Uh, now the tanks are belching out this purple goo as I drive down Highway 5. The, the cars behind me have their windshield wipers on. Um, the fruit flies are, are following me for 10 miles. Um, my blue truck is now purple. Um, um, and so um, we're in the middle of the day uh, now in California. It's hotter than hell. And I arrive at the border of the California Fruit Inspection Station. Um, now we're hammered. We haven't slept in two days. All we've eaten is beer and donuts in three days. We haven't bathed or shaved. We're a mess. And so I pull up to this fruit inspection station. There is this young female, very attractive little agent in a fresh, crisp uniform. And she dies. She looks up at this mess. <laughs> the front half of my truck is blue. The rest of it's purple. The wheels are purple. The tires are purple. There are all these fruit flies. The tanks are belching out this goo. And I'm sitting up there, I'm driving, 
<clears throat> the two guys next to me are passed out. And I roll down the window and I look down, way down there, she, there she is. And she's just in awe of me. <laughs> and I wait for her to talk. And she says, any fruit? <laughs> <laughs> and I look at my guys, I go, what do I do? You know, and they're asleep. I go, uh, so I lie. I, no. <laughs> I mean, here's, here's all this fruit. Um, she says, well, then go on through. So put it in gear. <clears throat> Get to Napa. It's a mess. I mean, it's, it's fermented. Uh, it is uh, gone acetic. Uh, it is horrible. Um, I take the tanks down. There's no way to pump them out. I have to slurry them. Um, I've got this, this junk all over my, my winery. Um, I'm an idiot. Um, and I realized that I did, shouldn't have done it that way. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so I did, as I told you, I, I did change, uh, change it up a little bit. Uh, didn't really help. Um, I did it. I didn't go up there with the tanks anymore. I, uh, I, I did a couple other things, and it didn't work. The only way uh, it could have worked is to uh, refrigerate the the grapes and put them in a van. Uh, and I actually uh, didn't do that. Uh, before that, I decided to make the wine up here, and I started looking for a place. So, um, uh, so Pinot Noir doesn't do anything easily. Uh, it is the teenager of the wine business. It's the brat, um, and one of the things that doesn't do well is, is transport. And interestingly enough, it doesn't even transport from Portland here. And so I have friends that buy grapes. And I'll, I'll be over there looking at their fruit. Now, it's only an hour drive, um, but they've got open uh, macro bins full of fresh Pinot Noir grapes. And when they get here, they're, they're not purple and gorgeous and cold and juicy. They are orange, they're dehydrated, they're uh, puckered, and they're unusable from, from, from um, Portland. Amazing. One hour drive. Hey, thanks, kids. Thank you so much. Uh, anything else you want to say at the end nope. or any questions I should have asked? All right. No. Perfect. No. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. And I appreciate what you guys are doing. Uh, no, you don't need. Uh, <laughs> but I appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, I've seen other programs like this. Um, uh, I'm a veteran. And so uh, a guy came to the veterans home uh, and, and interviewed all the veterans that were croaking uh, from all these things and got their stories yeah. on video. I mean, it was... It was huge. These guys were, you know, the ones that had their memory intact were, were beautiful. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they're just not doing well uh, physically, but it was perfect because their stories would have been erased. So yeah. what you're doing, I really appreciate it. It's neat. Thank you so much. Okay. I appreciate that. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. 
producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.